You're listening to the Bloom Europa podcast, a project that privileges new and independent thinking on Europe while discussing its current challenges. In each episode, we take a holistic but hard-hitting approach to analysing pan-European affairs. Hello and welcome to the Bloom Europa podcast. I'm Carlos Montenegro, co-founder of Bloom Europa, coming to you from Lisbon and Boston. And today, I wanted to share the first episode of our new podcast, where we will talk about how imminent may be a Russian invasion of Ukraine, as one country after another country are advising its citizens to evacuate Ukraine. Today's our guest is Mariana Bujarin, a research associate with the project on managing the atom at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, Balfour Center. She's also the author of the upcoming book, Inheriting the Bomb, Soviet Collapse and Nuclear Disarmament of Ukraine, published by Johns Hopkins Press. Our first episode will be hosted by my good friend, Aderit Vicente, PhD researcher at the European University Institute and also co-founder of Bloom Europa. They will both help us to access how dangerous may be the current crisis. Welcome both. Thank you, Carlos, for this introduction. And thank you, Mariana, for joining us. We are very pleased to have you here. It's my pleasure. So, Mariana, let us start our conversation about your research work. You have written various publications about the event called the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances. Uh, what you can tell us about this political agreement? So, to put this Budapest Memorandum into context, uh, I will backtrack a little bit um, and start with a broader picture. So in, as we all know, in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed and the Soviet Union was a nuclear superpower. At that time, it had about 30,000 nuclear weapons on its territory. And overnight, because the Soviet Union collapsed into 15 constitutive states uh, that, that used to be its republics, um, four of those republics, uh, now newly independent states, inherited the nuclear arms that were once Soviet. And those four were Russia, of course, but also Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. So uh, essentially overnight, um, Ukraine became the home for the world's third largest nuclear arsenal. And Kazakhstan, incidentally, was home to the world's fourth largest nuclear arsenal. So this is the scale of nuclear armaments that was inherited by these newly independent states. And while Belarus um, proceeded, so the, the expectation of the international community and the United States in particular uh, was that only one nuclear successor should emerge from the Soviet collapse. And that was done because 
you know, nuclear nonproliferation was a policy priority for the United States and also fears of regional instability and such. Uh, and that, you know, was logical that Russia uh, would be that sole nuclear successor, uh, especially in the context of the Treaty on the Nonproliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the NPT, right? The NPT recognizes only five nuclear states. One of them collapsed, but you couldn't very well admit four instead of that one. Uh, there could be only one successor. Uh, and so, you know, Russia succeeded the Soviet Union in respect of the NPT. But then the question of what to do, whose weapons essentially were, um, were located and deployed on the territory of the other three became a matter of contestation. And Belarus proceeded quite easily. It had no claim to these weapons. It sort of put them under Russian uh, jurisdiction. Uh, and then proceeded to disarm. Uh, after a short hesitation or contestation, so did Kazakhstan. But Ukraine became this case of um, where its leaders contested Russia's monopoly, as it were, on this nuclear uh, succession, the Soviet nuclear succession. They said, you know, these are our weapons. And even though Ukraine had a formulated policy that it would become a non-nuclear state, so it would relinquish nuclear weapons ultimately. It wanted a deal. And part of the deal was a compensation for the fissile material that was contained in the Ukrainian warheads. And another part was uh, security guarantees, or at least that's what Ukraine wanted to obtain. So these security guarantees, uh, and you know, certainly it was predicated by the fact that Russia was emerging, even back then in early 1990s, as a potential threat to Ukraine, as a country that will, you know, will potentially try to curb Ukraine's sovereignty that might revise Ukrainian borders. And Ukrainians were worried about that in retrospect, all too justifiably. Um, so they started uh, in mid-1992, Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ukrainian diplomats started to negotiate these security guarantees. And the, the, the end of that process, sort of the result of that process was a Budapest, uh, well, it's, it's officially called the Memorandum on Security Assurances in connection with Ukraine's accession to the NPT. So as we see in the title of this memorandum, there is no word guarantee. Uh, there's a word assurances, and this is very significant, and I'd be happy to explain in what ways. But this is essentially a document that was signed by Ukraine and the three NPT depository states, uh, United States, United Kingdom, and Russia. And it uh, pledged security commitments to Ukraine uh, to respect its sovereignty, territorial integrity, the inviolability of its borders, uh, abstention from threat and use of force, economic coercion, but also it contained uh, nuclear-related assurances, so NPT-related assurances that all nuclear states pledged to NPT non-nuclear states um, to the so-called positive and negative security assurances, so not to threaten uh, this non-nuclear country with nuclear weapons, and should this country come under the threat of nuclear weapons to see, seek action at UN Security Council. 
So this is essentially what the Budapest Memorandum amounted to. Yes, thank you, indeed. Uh, so in a way, this memorandum was a critical juncture on all this Russia-Ukraine crisis that we have now. We also can see that there are roots of the current crisis that came uh, from the breakout of the Soviet Union um, as well. Um, in, in, actually, in the period in which this political agreement was made. My question is, which major events came after the 1994 Budapest Memorandum? Right. So... You're correct in saying that the signature of the Budapest Memorandum was very significant for Ukrainians. It was, even though they did not obtain the guarantees that they sought, something really robust and uh, maybe something that specified costs for the breach of it, right? The, the memorandum contained none of that. Um, it simply reaffirmed security commitments contained elsewhere, say in the UN Charter or the 1975 Helsinki Final Act, uh, and as I said, the, the NPT-related um, nuclear security assurances. And still it was, you know, it was a significant document that recognized Ukraine's legitimate security concerns. And uh, Ukraine became the only country to join the NPT with such a signed document in attached to the act of accession, uh, if, if you will. Uh, well, Belarus and Kazakhstan also signed similar memoranda simply because they were sort of fellow travelers uh, in this whole story, but Ukraine actually negotiated it, insisted that there should be something like this, this memorandum and got it signed. And after the signature, Ukrainian diplomats and the leaders at the time, they understood very well what they got and what they didn't get. They, they knew um, that, you know, those weren't robust security assurances, something like NATO Article 5 uh, type of commitment uh, that perhaps Ukrainians would have liked to have. Um, but they still translated the word assurances as guarantees into Ukrainian and into Russian, incidentally. Uh, partially justifying it by the fact that the, there isn't, a, you know, there isn't an equivalent for the word assurance in Ukrainian, which is only partly right, but also sort of commun to to sell this document to their internal audiences that were quite uh, worried then that perhaps Ukrainians weren't getting the kinds of, you know, security settlement uh, that they wanted, and. The, uh, after the signature of the memorandum, there seems to have been sort of a complacency, as it were, that, oh, we got these guarantees in exchange for a disarmament. So, you know, things are good. Uh, we don't have to worry much about things. And of course, the they, uh, emphasis or the focus uh, of Ukraine's development at that point shifted very squarely onto economic development, the establishment of independent currency. This was the presidency of Leonid Kuchma, who was, uh, you know, for all his other faults, was was someone who put a stop to this really spiraling um, inflation and the the real very deep post-Soviet. A transitional crisis. So Ukraine sort of wanted to to develop economically and uh, you know remain generally at this this neutral non-allied country. But 
very slowly, um, you know, it, it sort of appeared that perhaps well, Ukraine was suffering from the general malaise <laughs> that afflicted all post-Soviet countries where, you know, there was a small number of people that got very rich very quickly, the so-called oligarchs, by acquiring state property at very low prices and these things. So they um, kind of grabbed power and became intertwined with the, with the political institutions. Uh, and one thing that Ukraine has, as it turned out, always had uh, was this nascent but very vocal and robust civil society. So whenever some of these most egregious excesses of political leaders became uh, apparent, people just came out and protested. And one of the first such protests, protests was a movement of Ukraine against Kuchma that was spurred by the uh, murder of a very well-known Ukrainian oppositional uh, journalist, uh, Georgi Gangadze. His body was found beheaded in the woods outside of uh, of Kiev, that was early 2000s, and that spurred an outcry. Um, oh, Kuchma tried to anoint his uh, other, you know, a president, um, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, as his anointed heir to the presidential throne. Uh, somehow this person won. Uh, there were allegations of widespread fraud, and that spurred election fraud, that spurred the the, uh, the Orange Revolution in 2004. So this was the first big kind of mass movement um, where people came out and said, our voice needs to count properly and we're not going to settle and be manipulated by politicians in the office. And th it was a successful revolution. You know, the election was rerun. Uh, the, um, the opposite number or the, the contender in the presidential elections to Viktor Yanukovych, Viktor Yushchenko won um, and, you know, had a five-year presidency. Uh, then, uh, as we well know, after that presidency, the original Viktor Yanukovych won and became, um, you know, very closely aligned with Kremlin. Uh, in fact, you know, Ukrainian security and military establishments took a very big hit at that point, uh, at, at some point, Ukraine's defense minister was a Russian citizen. <laughs> so you can imagine, uh, you know, the, the level to which uh, Russian interests were pe had penetrated Ukraine's establishment. Uh, and once again, there was uh, there was another protest this time in 2014, spurred by the refusal of this president, Viktor Yanukovych, under Russian pressure to sign an association agreement with the European Union. Uh, he, last minute, he decided not to sign. There was, you know, years of preparation that went into it. Uh, under Russian pressure, he uh, re rescinded on that uh, decision. Uh, and, you know, people went out and protested. Uh, now, as opposed to the Orange Revolution in, um, uh, in this, what became known as Revolution of Dignity, the government of Viktor Yanukovych used force. And that was a huge mistake because uh, he would, his regime would have probably survived the protests. 
uh, had he not sent riot police that brutally tried to squash it and that only made people more angry and more people came out. So these particular protests uh, turned violent and turned bloody. There were about 100 people that died in late January, early February of 2014. And amid, and president fled to Russia, President Yanukovych, and amid this, you know, upheaval, that's when uh, Kremlin moved in and uh, occupied Crimea. This was done in a very well-planned and very well-prepared special ops, um, special operation. This was done without a shot. Uh, and at the same time, they started instigating, uh, you know, takeover of towns and administrative buildings in, in Ukraine's east, where they thought there would be there would be support for such thing. Uh, there they miscalculated because at that point Ukrainians sort of regrouped and were uh, and managed to put you know stage a resistance. So, um, uh, you know, we know the story since then there has been a war in eastern Ukraine. Um, for eight years now, it was hot and bloody for the first couple of years, and then a ceasefire essentially was reached with the participation of, uh, you know, Russia, Germany, and France. That was negotiated in 2015, um, and now we see sort of another spur in that process, right? Uh, again, instigated on the Russian side. Um, out of seemingly out of thin air, right? We just a year ago, we would not have any one of us would not have predicted that we would be standing on a brink of war, literally. Uh, you know, this day, February 17th, 2022. Yes, indeed. Um, so, from your perspective as a scholar, but also as an Ukrainian, why do you think Russia is threatening Ukraine now? Aterito, that's a very good question. And I think, uh, you know, there has been a lot of guesswork and a lot of punditry in the last month or two about uh, motives and about timing. Why now? Why start all of this now? Um, I can't, I don't have a good answer to it. But the best one I've heard and the best one I, I can wrap my head around is that is that over the, the since 2014, right, when Ukrainian army was in uh, in pretty sorry state, uh, it wasn't very well developed and wasn't very well supplied. Uh, since then, Ukrainian armed forces have made great progress due to Ukrainian government's efforts and due to uh, the Western uh, security and military help from the United States, but also from other partners, from Canada, from the UK, from Poland, et cetera. So um, there's the, the cost of invading and occupying at least parts of Ukraine has gone up. And if it continues that way, then perhaps it will at some point become prohibitive. So Russia will not will no longer have sort of a plausible military option in Ukraine. Uh, at the same time, you know, they whether you know the calculation was that after Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
the United States would be uh, less likely to stand up for Ukraine or get involved in, in some other you know, potential conflict uh, in Europe, uh, whether the, the, you know, Putin was banking on the disunity of NATO and the West on the question of Ukraine, because, of course, Ukraine is not a particularly central country uh, or hasn't been until now for, um, for most of European countries and for most of, um, you know, the Nord, Nord Stream 2 is nearly finished. Uh, and, of course, you know, there was probably a gamble that, that uh, Germany would not risk uh, put that project in peril uh, just over Ukraine. If that has been the calculation, it has backfired. This has not happened, right? But I think from, from Russia's standpoint, uh, you know, there was sort of the stalemate where uh, Donbass was l largely quiet, where Russia has been, they, they had Crimea, but, you know, it takes a lot of money and, and it takes a lot of resources for them to maintain that and supply it over the bridge and, and so forth. So if they were to make this move and change the status quo, now was probably the window of opportunity with maybe uh, a weakened and disunited West and then a Ukraine that was still weak enough to be able to, you know, to, to be conquered or at least parts of, of it to be conquered. Because, you know, the, there's news of, of Turkish, um, of Turkey supplying drones, uh, combat drones to Ukraine, even starting production of these drones in Ukraine. Uh, there's supply of arms. So, you know, there is a buildup uh, of Ukrainian defense capacity. Um, and if that had continued, I think that would have removed the military option for, for Putin altogether. So um, in recent months, we have distinct positions by the US and Russia. On last December, Russia presented the US and NATO with a list of demands. Uh, actually, Putin demanded that NATO stop its eastward expansion and deny membership to Ukraine. And NATO should roll back troop deployment in countries that joined after 1997. Um, of course, as expected, the US and NATO rejected those demands and proposed in return some proposal for agreement on arms control, mostly around uh, missiles and nuclear weapons, nuclear warheads. Um, so in that sense, why do you think diplomacy hasn't produced enough breakthroughs so far? Well, so the arms control part of it, that was launched or, or relaunched, as it were, as after the uh, Geneva summit in June, it was, if I'm, uh, if I'm correct, last year between Biden and Putin. And they're already, you know, working groups have been set up an agenda has been drawn up for potential talks on arms control. So you really don't need to build up 150,000 troops of, uh, on Ukrainian border to, you know, to start talking arms control. That was already uh, proceeding. Mm -hmm. um, there was a meeting in September and then again, I think maybe in October and November. So there have been and now in, in January, that was already uh, the meeting that had uh, addressed uh, some of the Russian demands 
on arms control. And, you know, arms control is a long, you know, is an ongoing process. It has been the staple of U.S.-Soviet relations. And there have been agreements between Russia and the U.S. Uh, after the uh, after the Soviet collapse. So that's a that's a perfectly fine and productive way for the two nuclear powers to engage. In fact, they should engage in arms control. It's better for all of us. Now, the Russian demands about the non-expansion of NATO and the rollback of forces, um, I find it hard to believe that President Putin did not understand that that's a non-starter. That, uh, you know, his if he wanted really de facto to prevent Ukraine's membership uh, in NATO, A, he has already done that essentially by occupying part of Ukraine and making it a volatile region with contested borders, uh, something NATO was, would not likely to, you know, to absorb, certainly not anytime soon and certainly not in any foreseeable future. I mean, he's already had a you know, de facto veto on Ukraine's membership in NATO. Um, I think perhaps what he didn't like seeing was that even despite uh, the absence of this membership in NATO. Ukraine was getting the military aid and Ukraine was improving its uh, its armed forces and Ukraine was getting arms supplied uh, to bolster its, its defenses. Mm-hmm. And uh, most certainly after 2014, even the parts of the population that were traditionally very friendly towards Russia, I mean, you know, there's whole cities and and huge parts of Ukraine that are essentially Russian speaking. Uh, and there, there have been intermarriages and, and people have relatives uh, across the border. So um, even, even in those parts though, uh, his, his strategy had backfired and you know, there's a lot more kind of readiness or sentiment that Russia is the actual aggressor and that Russia is a threat, even amongst these previously friendly parts of the population. So I think he was kind of losing Ukraine permanently um, to the West. And that is somehow, I'm not sure why he's so fixated on Ukraine. I really don't know, because if you read his uh, sayings and his articles, and especially this one, uh, in June, was it, or in July, about Ukraine and Russia being uh, same people. And then there was an, an October article by uh, ex-president Medvedev, um, who was who's a good guy, who's the West likes uh, Medvedev because he's sort of reasonable and he signed start, start a new start with the U.S. But uh, it was just like scathing disdain, this this really patronizing way of speaking about Ukrainians as kind of these non-people, as this accidental state that doesn't even deserve, you know, sovereignty. They're just kind of like a bunch of jokers who don't know don't know who they are, and it's just really, a really striking language um, that that just kind of belittles and diminishes uh, Ukraine as you know, as a state, as a project, as, as a people who have some kind of right to, you know, to independence and sovereignty. So uh, I, I find it hard to believe that somehow it's it's some kind of great love for or concern for Ukraine that is driving him uh, in his policy. If anything, it's probably the opposite. 
<laughs> right. So as you know it, uh, recently there was a proposal by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, by its uh, chairman uh, in office, the Polish uh, Sibigny Rao, uh, basically proposed to launch a renewed uh, informal dialogue on security in Europe within the framework of this international organization. The answer from Russia was positive, but of course, the security guarantees that uh, Moscow wants can be only solved by the US and NATO. Um, in that context, uh, do you think it was a good proposal or it could be another venue for diplomacy? So, uh, you know, OSCE should certainly be a venue for, for many things, including uh, strategies for de-escalation. There's a Vienna document on military exercises and different buildup of military forces that needs updating. And Ukraine actually has, has activated the mechanism of consultations or called the meeting uh, under the Vienna document to address this Russian troops buildup. So these are exactly the kinds of... Uh, confidence-building measures and transparency measures uh, that already exist within the OSCE. The, the challenge is to apply them and to use them and to respect uh, them and you know abide by them and keep on improving them. They, the demand for the guarantee that NATO would not expand uh, the striking thing about it was not only because, you know, politically somehow, uh, it, you know, politically Putin should have known that's a, that's a non-starter, right? So there is, of course, a strategy of starting high in negotiations with the, with the view that you will have to climb down, you know, to sort of this middle ground that would still be acceptable for you. But that really sounded something like an ultimatum. But it's the time frame that was most striking. They wanted an answer within two weeks somehow, or you know, a pledge. Now we know that NATO is an alliance. It's not an entity that enters into uh, any kind of international agreements and gives pleasures. It, uh, pleasures. It's uh, it's a, the member states, right? So the process for twenty nine member states to go and deliberate that policy because unilaterally you can't do it. This, I think article eight of the Washington treaty that founded NATO that says, you know, no state can unilaterally undertake, no, you know, signatory of this agreement can unilaterally undertake uh, obligations that are in, in conflict. You know, I paraphrase, but essentially in conflict with this agreement. And Article 10, of course, following up, says there is an open door policy. Uh, NATO has the right to, to invite uh, members or you know, any European country has the right to seek uh, NATO membership. So essentially, you would have to agree to unilaterally to change or collectively, I want, rather, to change or make caveats to this Article 10. And NATO as a as a, an alliance can't do it. So that would involve procedurally, even procedurally, 29 members deliberating and deciding that, you know, in their parliaments or whatever their constitutional procedures are. I mean, that would take, even if there was political, even if there were political will, that would take longer than two weeks, me thinks, yeah. right? Right. So, uh, so that's why it seems that it, it very strongly suggests itself that these, this demand for guarantees 
was a non-starter. And it does sound like an ultimatum. I mean, perhaps there could be, you know, a political pledge to maybe suspend uh, invitation for, you know, another 10 years or so. I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, but, but given how high Putin started, uh, that would hardly seem like a victory for him in his domestic, uh, for, for his domestic audiences, um, you know, even, even if that were true, which, you know, which clearly NATO has no intention of, of changing its open door policy, as we've learned. Uh, right. Uh, in that context, if I may add, some days ago, former Finnish Prime Minister and current Director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute, my institute, Alexander Stoop, uh, told recently to Amanpour in CNN that Finland's position within Soviet Union, that is, Finlandization, is a sore point in his country's history. And of course, doesn't apply to Ukraine. So this is his opinion. So, in other words, what he's trying to say is that it wouldn't be a good solution because essentially the history of Finland and Soviet Union slash Russia is different from the history between Ukraine and Russia. Of course, yeah. And, and also, uh, but I mean, the concept of neutrality or guaranteed neutrality, uh, it's not, you know, perhaps it could travel across times and contexts and geographical contexts. Uh, it's just, it seems to me that it would, it's already too little too late at this point. Already after the war has been on for eight years, already after this, this act of, of, you know, build up and, and, and the, the spike in tensions that we see now and the really looming threat. I mean, I think this morning, I, 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 for, the, for the first time, I kind of lost my optimism that that war could be avoided. It's really not looking good. And there's no, there's no good reason for it other than Putin wants this war, <laughs> it seems to me, right? So, uh, so a guaranteed neutrality at this point, it's, I really don't think would work. Yes, uh, just to finish, uh, as you said earlier, considering the current situation, uh, perhaps an invasion could be could happen. You even mentioned the word war, and it's a narrative that is out there. But uh, what do you think is going to happen? Padarito, that's a million dollar question. Uh, and I wish it was just a million dollar question. That's probably, you know, uh, hundreds and thousands of lives kinds of kind of question. Um, it certainly looks like Russia has prepared and it continues to prepare a military option. Whether they decided to, to use it, to move on in it, already and this is just you know kind of these little steps that they're doing uh, to kind of get there there's no way of knowing i think if there is a military action it's not going to be a full-blown large-scale invasion like the media has been portraying it where you know you have you know, huge masses of tanks and people rolling uh, through the Ukrainian border and going uh, straight for Kiev. 
I mean, I hope not. <laughs> that might uh, happen, but I, I think that would be too risky and and risk, you know, Russian Russians stretching too thin, and uh, uh, you know, having to contend with local resistance uh, along you know along a stretched line. Um, so I, that does not seem as plausible. But I certainly can see how uh, from from the occupied parts of the Donbass, there would be growing and growing escalation. So the breach of the Minsk uh, agreements, and we've already seen it this morning, there has been a spike in uh, ceasefire breaches with the use of the, uh, the, the kinds of artillery and grenade launchers that are banned under the Minsk agreements. So there has been 29 shellings just this morning, and uh, one of them hit a kindergarten. Actually, fortunately, nobody, um, you know, there were no uh, casualties, um, or at least nobody was killed. Uh, but so, you know, you would see this kind of gradual escalation in the Donbass, uh, and perhaps there would be, you know, a, a, a a move or an intrusion, invasion from right above it, um, so to just to the north of the occupied Donbas, and from the south, from the from the Azov Sea, to actually to perhaps join that Donbas region with Crimea to kind of create uh, a land corridor between Crimea and uh, and mainland Russia and the Donbas. I can, you know, the, the revival of this uh, Novorossiya, the new Russia project that has been foiled back in 2014, 2015. Um, and, you know, this could be false flag operations. There's there's gazillion tools that Russians and, you know, and the, their special ops have at their disposal. Uh, they control the media. They have been flooding the internal media market with all sorts of you know, what we call fake news, a very, very powerful propaganda campaign right now in Russia. Uh, you've uh, probably heard that in the press conference with uh, with Chancellor Schultz, Putin uh, mentioned the word genocide. Uh, I hope Schultz cringed uh, because, of course, you know, certainly one doesn't throw these words around uh, lightly and especially in front of a German Um and uh, and you know there's there's sort of a different world it seems that that the Russian uh, society lives in different information uh, kind of environment. Uh, so who the heck knows what what could be justified internally and what could uh, you know what could be sold to the internal audiences. Um, but you know there could be a pretext of some kind of you know, attacked on Russian-speaking population or Russian citizens, because, of course, we know Russians have been giving out passports uh, in the Donbass. Allegedly, there are about 600 Russian passport holders in the Donbass. Uh, I mean, there's there's many different ways in which you can justify to the start of a conflict if a conflict is what you want. So, Mariana, in that note, uh, we hope that paraphrasing U.S. former ambassador Allison Stevenson. Uh, we hope that cool heads will prevail. And of course, again, thank you so much for coming to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. We kindly invite you to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Spotify, YouTube, and other platforms. You can also check out all the links and resources on the show's notes. That's all for this episode, folks, and we look forward to you tuning in next time. This was a Bloom Europa original.